When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, I'm tempted to call this a summer special, but it's not quite summer yet, and it remains to be seen how special it is. But uh, we're just basically catching up. We've not been uh, with you for a few weeks, because obviously it's been a bit of downtime since the World Championship. So I'm here with Clive Everton, the editor of Snooker Scene, of course. I'm going to just have a little catch-up of things that have happened and things to look forward to as uh, the new season. Well, it's already underway, but of course we'll be gathering pace as uh, the weeks go on. We'll start, Clive, with the sort of final, final word on the World Championship. Uh, you, perhaps in the unique position, you've known, to one degree or another, every World Champion, going right back to, to Joe Davis. What's your take on Mark Selby, the man, the player? I've got great admiration for him. Nobody uh, gets to be a World Champion without some natural ability, but he, he doesn't, he's not as well endowed in that respect as somebody like Ronnie O'Sullivan, obviously, but he's made himself in, into the player he is. And the quality I most admire in him is his competitiveness, his determination. Uh, he didn't play brilliantly by any means all the way through the World Championship, but the, the most important standard a, a player has is the standard he never falls below. And uh, that's what enabled him uh, to come through some pretty dodgy matches. He could have lost in the first round even to, to, to Sam Baird. And uh, he, he, he ended up champion again for the second time in three years. One of his skills seems to be, he's good at winning bad frames, isn't he? Let's a skill someone like Stephen Hendry, for example, obviously a great, great player. He didn't have that, he just wanted to make big breaks. But Selby, if it's an hour scrap, he doesn't mind. No, uh, in that respect, it, it, there's some resemblance to Mark Williams. Mark Williams in his prime was a great winner of scrappy frames. Uh, Stephen Hendry certainly certainly wasn't uh, too impatient, really. Uh, in fact, Hendry once said to me that uh, if he'd won his fair share of scrappy frames, he'd, he'd have been a lot more successful even than he was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, after the World Championship, uh, I went to the World Snooker Awards, which uh, a good time was had by all. And the, the one thing I took away from it was uh, Barry Hearn. I know he's not to everyone's taste, but what a great front man he is. He, he did a hilarious couple of speeches. He did an auction. It was very, very funny. And uh, it, was a, it was a good evening, although uh, I think it's fair to say, Clive, you were rather surprised that Rex Williams was uh, was ushered into the Hall of Fame. Well, uh, <laughs> as a as a player, uh, Rex Williams won uh, the World Billiards Championship when, it, in fact, he, he he brought it out of retirement. Really, it hadn't been played at all from 1951 until uh, 1968, when he he went to New Zealand and beat Clark McConaughey for it. Clark McConaughey, by that time, being well into his seventies. <coughs> Um, and uh, he was Williams was world billiards champion on and off until the early the early eighties. Um, very fine billiards player, good snooker player. Uh, two world semi finals and also got to the final of the the Grand Prix at the age of fifty three. But uh, as a playing record, I don't think it merited an award. So we must assume that the award is primarily for his periods when he was chairman of the WPBSA. 
but some of those periods were extremely controversial. Uh, he, he landed the WPBSA in several legal actions um, through what I would describe as defects in his own personality. Uh, ended up costing the association a lot of money. Probably if you totaled it up it would be more than a quarter of a million. And I think this was a pretty shaky basis um, on which to give him an award. See back issues for more information. I've never seen uh, many of them. Um, and we also had Q School, and we're not going to go on too much about that because we weren't there. But uh, I just want to say congratulations to John Astley who came through because, of course, John had practice at the Crucible. He was in this play, The Nap, and he was knocking in centuries for fun there. So uh, I think that did him a favour, you know, being in that because it was something different. It was a little bit of profile, and he absolutely loved it. I mean, I went to see it, and he clearly, clearly enjoying it, and maybe just gave him a little sort of boost when he went into the, the Q School. Yes, good luck to him. Uh, I, I, it can't be easy to make centuries to order, even when you, you know that the balls are going to be fairly favourably placed. You've still got to do it, so uh, that, that was good for him, and I agree with your uh, analysis that it helped him when he got back to playing real snooker. Yeah. Well, real snooker and the shootout. Now, this is, this is the big controversy since the World Championship. The shootout is going to be... A world ranking event. I was actually told about this at the awards, and I, I honestly thought it was a joke, but it turned, <laughs> it turned, it turned out it wasn't. So the shootout is going to be a ranking event. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I completely disagree with it being a ranking event. Um, how can you have a ranking event? Um, how can you give ranking status to uh, 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 an, an event which is not played under the rules of snooker? Uh, they're, they're, they're played under the rules of well, loosely under the some rules of snooker, and the other rules are invented for the occasion. So uh, I, I think uh, I don't think Barry Hearn has got many things wrong, but I think he's got that wrong in a big way. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, most play, well, a lot of players who've been vocal about it, certainly the top players, seem to seem to agree with that. And um, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that it, Neil Robertson made the point that, and he's won a lot of ranking tournaments. It's actually really hard to win a ranking event. Whereas the shootout, it's much more of a lottery. Obviously, they're just 10-minute matches. And he says it takes away the achievement of winning what he would describe as a proper ranking event. But also, the shootout is supposed to be fun. That's how it's marketed. It's a bit of fun. Surely it's going to be less fun and more serious if it's carrying ranking points. Because you could, in theory, get to the crucible off the back of winning it. Well, it could make a big difference, certainly. Uh, I, I agree, I agree with, with, with Neil Robertson. When you compare the amount of effort which has to go into winning any ranking event, you know, be it major or minor, and, and the effort required for, for winning the shootout, um, th th there is no valid comparison. So I repeat, I think, this, I think this has been a big mistake. There was no imperative to do it. I don't think there's, 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 there's any advantage in doing it. Barry's view seems to be um, that so anyone who disagrees with, with well, he, he's a great innovator, we know that, he, he, and he has innovated throughout his career, but he seems to think anyone who's not on board is sort of stuck in the mud, dinosaur, you know, traditionalist and so on. But, uh, well, we're traditionalists, but we're not against change. It's just the, the wrong sort of change, I guess. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think the game has, has got to keep its dignity, uh, and with the shootout, with rather inebriated spectators <laughs> yelling out all the time that that that's not the most dignified occasion that the snooker world has during the during the season speaking of undignified uh matt Selp uh has been suspended for two tournaments for for tweets that uh, he put out uh, 
I believe they were deleted. I didn't actually see what he said, but they were obviously serious enough to herald a disciplinary. He's been uh, suspended from the Riga Masters and the Paul Hunter Classic. When I first heard about this, I thought it was ridiculously harsh punishment. But uh, I've since spoken to someone at the WP say who was involved in the disciplinary process. And they said, and this is their side of it, so I'm, that's what I'm putting across here. They said that the reason he was suspended in the end was not so much the offence, but actually the defence. They didn't accept his defence. They, took, they said it took them a lot of time investigating it and they found that it, it, it had no basis in, in fact. And that was an aggravating factor. Now, I'm sure if Matt was here, he would deny all that. But on a more general sense, this is new territory, isn't it? All of a sudden, players being banned for tweeting. Well, it's never happened before. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, it, it is a somewhat dubious precedent. Uh, what has happened is that a player has been fined for something that he has not done on the table or mm. in the course of a tournament. Um, and uh, it's not like match fixing, for instance, or potential match fixing. I think it, it's legitimate to, to, to suspend a player when that is either suspected or, or, it's, uh, or it's in fact happened. But uh, I, I think that a, a suspension for two tournaments, plus a thousand pounds costs, is is not quite the the right way to go. I I think Selt's remarks were uncouth. He should he should he should have been punished. Uh, but I think maybe I would have favoured a straightforward fine over and done with than a rather indefinite punishment of of, of suspension because suspension from two ranking events that would represent or could represent a very considerable loss of earnings out of proportion at least if you sort of bit the bullet and find him two thousand pounds or three thousand pounds you you'd set a benchmark i think it it shows in general how sort of seriously social media is now taken um there was a case of liang wenbo a couple of years ago he swore using very similar language to what matt selt did in a referee's face, in the arena. It was heard on streaming, it was heard by the audience. He was fined £8,000, which is not a small punishment, but it's not being banned from torments. But Matt's done this on Twitter, and because, I think, of the, the way that social media has, has become sort of so central all of a sudden to sort of general life, it's, it's regarded as really serious. But, of course, you know, it's hard to police social media. There's a lot of players are on there, more than half the tour are on there, there's no one at World Snooker sort of combing through it all, you know, minute by minute. This came about because a member of the public complained. But they have now set a precedent, haven't they? And the next person who does something, because there will guarantee be someone who does, what are they going to do with them? Well, uh, uh, the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, what you've got to have is, is, is some, some, sort of, some sort of standard, various, various benchmarks. But each case is different, mm. and you've got to rely on the, the, the good sense and fairness of the committee, which I, I think in the main you can. Mm. I, I think that the, the WPBSA Disciplinary Committee do take considerable pains to, to, to get it right as they see it. Mm. I was told that, because uh, it's a disciplinary process, it, it's more um, transparent than it used to be, but still maybe could be more transparent. But I was told that in the last two years there have only actually been 11 cases heard, which is not many at all. In darts, it's something like 50 or 60, because it's the same uh, people who do both. Anyway, be, if you want to find out more about the Matt Selt uh, disciplinary, including the, what we heard from the WP say, it'll be in the July issue of Snooker Scene. So the new season's underway by qualifying at Preston Guildhall. Um, it was all a bit low-key. There weren't many shocks. In fact, there were hardly any at all, um, which I guess underlines that even though 
players have the right to be a bit rusty since the World Championship. You know, the best players are the best players. Yes, um, it, 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 it does have a feel of sort of after the Lord's mm. Mayor show when you go virtually sort of straight into straight into qualifyings, but. The question is, what is the alternative? You, you've just you've just got to do it and get on with it. Mm. Yeah, Neil Robertson, uh, he, he did. Uh, they say there are no traditions left in the game, but Neil, uh, not for the first, <laughs> not for the first time, didn't make it. He blamed the traffic on the M6, but uh, put it this way, everyone else got there in time. But he did win that match, and uh, the, as I say, there were very few shocks uh, in the in the qualifiers at Preston. Uh, Riga Masters, of course, the first ranking event coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So as we look ahead to the new season, I guess the, the question is really, and we saw last year, uh, Karen Wilson broke through, he won a, a ranking event, we saw Luca Brussel get to a final. This is what we need, isn't it? We need some of the younger players to start actually winning tournaments. It's good to see some of the old stages doing well, but any sport needs new faces to do well. Yes, you need, you need a turnover. You, you need a balance between uh, the established players and, and the newcomers. Um, I'm a little bit worried, actually, uh, about <coughs> the lack of of newcomers coming through from from the UK. I think this is a knock-on effect of so many snooker clubs closing down. Not because people don't like snooker anymore, but because of all the economic reasons uh, associated with running a snooker club. And um, we're, we're, see, we're seeing the effect of that, uh, the effect of that now. Mm. I mentioned uh, Karen Wilson there. Uh, he backed it up, didn't he? Um, we, we, I think our very first podcast, actually, we discussed he just won in Shanghai, so it would be last September. And we were interested to see how he would go the rest of the season. Well, he did well in a couple of other events and then quarterfinals of the World Championship. And what impresses me about him is he clearly believes he's a top player. Sometimes you get players, they break into the top 16, and they, you can tell they kind of don't really think they deserve to be there. He thinks he deserves to be there. Yes, uh, and he's prepared to do whatever is necessary. I, I, I like Kyron's game, uh, and even more, I like his attitude. Mm -hmm. So I guess if there are going to be any new winners, who are they going to be? It's, uh, it's, it's hard to say because... We saw last season Rory McLeod, he wouldn't have been necessarily tipped as a tournament winner, but he won one of the European Tour events, I guess because there are so many tournaments. And the standard is very high as you go deep down the rankings. There are chances now, aren't there, for people to, to, to win tournaments? There are. Uh, I would have said last season a player's best chance would have been in one of the PTCs, but they've, mm. now, been, yes. <laughs> they've now been discontinued. And there is quite a step up from winning a, a PTC to winning a ranking event. Mm. Um, I don't really have a prediction to offer on who the next newcomer to win a ranking event will be. Uh, if I had a good idea about that, I'd be down the bookies. Yes. But, uh... Well, one player I've noticed actually, I'm not saying he's going to win a tournament necessarily, but it's interesting to see players, sometimes players improve dramatically, like Karen Wilson shot up the rankings, he won a tournament. Jimmy Robertson, I've noticed, has, has crept up and crept up and crept up. He's up to 34 in the world year or so ago is in the 50s and that's an example of someone who's sort of just doing well in tournaments not necessarily getting to semi-finals but he's doing well and creeping up and you never know you know the confidence from that possibly could happen that's probably jinxed him now so I apologise to Jimmy but it's going to be the busiest ever season we've got four new tournaments we've got the three home series events English, Irish and Scottish Opens we've got the European Championship in Romania uh, the Aussie Open's gone but the World Open returns so and it's already been noticeable from the qualifiers, not all of the top players have entered all the tournaments. Players have got to balance their schedules, haven't they? I mean, I suppose the further down the rankings you go, you have to play in everything because you need the money or the, the chance of winning the money. But for the top players, it's, it's, a, it's a case now of picking and choosing. 
Well, for the top players, it's a case not only not of producing adequate performances, but peak performances. And the fact that Mark Selby didn't play in either the Players' Championship or uh, the China Open, the two tournaments immediately preceding the World Championship, uh, was probably a factor in uh, in him winning uh, at the at the at the Crucible. Yeah. Uh, so, in terms of the season to come, I mean, the, the fact I mean, all right, we talked we talked about the shootout, and that's been in the headlines, but. The amount of tournaments that there are now, I mean, quite seriously, you know, seven, eight years ago, this would have been fantasy, wouldn't it, if you'd have brought out the schedule and had all these tournaments on, you just wouldn't have believed it. No, no, uh, uh, Barry Hearn has done a fabulous job in, 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 in filling, up, uh, uh, filling up the calendar like this, and they're, they're not tin pot events either, they've got the decent money, this is going to be a £10 million circuit for the first time this, for the, for the first time this season, uh, and Players, to go back to your previous question, have, have got to plan their their schedules accordingly. I, I remember Selby saying um, after his first match at, at the Crucible of, of the previous month or so, he just didn't feel right, mm. uh, and and you've 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 not got to play so much that your mental powers are, are eroded, but you've got to play enough to keep competitive. I think the opposite problem is that, is that Ronnie O'Sullivan didn't play enough. Mm. Um, at the Crucible, his break-making was absolutely, was absolutely fine, but he, he wasn't really match-tight, and uh, when it came to it, he, 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 he did admit this. I think we'll see uh, O'Sullivan playing more, more tournaments this season, and uh, I look forward to that. Yeah, well, it's, it's fallen well for him in as much as we know he doesn't like travelling, but obviously there's tournaments now in Britain, the three new ones in the UK and Ireland, so I'd be very surprised if he doesn't play in, in those. And, of course, uh, if anyone wins all four, remember, they get a million-pound bonus. So it'll be interesting if, say, someone wins the first two. Be focused the mind, certainly, for the third one. Uh, we should congratulate... We're going to move on to some uh, Twitter questions in a mo moment, but we should congratulate... Sean Murphy and Karen Wilson, who uh, recently got ma got married, not to each other, I should say, I should say that would be a story, but uh, uh, Sean married uh, Elaine, his partner, and Karen married uh, Sophie just last week. So there's just a little bit of time in the schedule to, to get that done and go on honeymoon. Right, I asked uh, yesterday for, for questions on Twitter. We've had quite a few, so if I don't read yours out, apologies, but uh, we, we don't want to make this too long. Uh, we start with, uh, I'm going to read out the Twitter handles, so these are not necessarily the names of the people. Morgan asks... Are there any professional players who have never had a coach? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, up to the up to the seventies, certainly coaching was virtually unknown. Uh, Ray Reardon never had a coach. John Spencer never had a coach. Uh, Alex Higgins certainly never had a coach. <laughs> Imagine trying to coach him. Uh, but uh, uh, I think the, the game has moved on. The, 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 the science of the game, if you like, has become a, a appreciated more. And um, uh, virtually everyone now, all the top players now, have, have, have had at least some contact uh, with the coach. Mark Selby, not that much. Mm. Not that much. But th th there's two aspects to, to coaching. The, the, there's the actual technique side of it. And then there's the the learning side of it, what to do in certain situations. And I think that the players can can basically be self-taught about responding to situations. Technique, if there's anything wrong with it, has got to be put put right with somebody's help. Mountain Man asks, 
Who are the best players who have done the least practice in their careers but have still got results? <laughs> well, it, depend, it depends what you mean by practice, really. I, again, I go back to the 70s. Um, I, I think that, that, that basically the, the, the top players just, just played. Mm. They, they didn't really practice anything specific. It, it, it was all so much less... Scientific than it is now. They were very good players in their age, but I don't think they would have cut much ice in the modern era. You look at other sports, and everybody's looking for an edge, and very often that comes with the appointment or working with a specific coach. Mm. Well, it's become more professional, hasn't it? Because there's a lot more money in it, and it is a profession. And you know, everyone's down the gym these days. Whereas maybe 30 years ago, they'd be sort of down the pub having a, having a drink and a smoke. Uh, Wavy David asks. He says, "We all know Jimmy White is the greatest player to never be crowned world champion. Do you think Judd Trump and Ding Junhui will join him in missing out?" Well, of course. They both actually come very close uh, to winning it. They've both been in finals. Ding, I thought, played probably the best snooker actually of the World Championship this year. But didn't beat Selby in the final. Maybe a bit too early to write them off. They're still in their twenties, aren't they? Yeah, too too early to write them off. But the longer it goes, the more difficult it's going to be to actually clinch it. Mm. What is the the difference then? What I mean, do you think the difference for Ding was he'd never been in a World Final before because he played beautifully to get there and then. Made that slow start, didn't he? Went six nil down early on, and and it looked like he'd be swamped. He came back into it, but maybe left it too late. Well, I, I guess playing in a world final <coughs> is is a unique experience. There are only so many crucibles. There are only so many world championships that a player can play in his own lifetime, and it, and it's a, a unique pressure. And maybe uh, that was what undid him in the early stages of the match. Mm. We shall see, uh, as you say, there's only one chance a year to become world champion. Of course, you've got to beat great players to do it. Snooker Backer asks, can you ask Clive his feelings about the future of the UK amateur game? Now, Tim Snooker Backer uh, has got an interest in this because he and Sean Murphy are, tr are trying to put together a proposal to give the amateur game a, a kickstart by putting together, in effect, an amateur circuit. I guess the problem is, we've alluded to this already, is that the, the, the dearth of snooker clubs in Britain, I mean, it used to be pretty much any town in Britain, town centre you go there there'd be at least one snooker club maybe two or three but now if you want to play snooker you've got to travel well that that's it that's it uh, I, I, I welcome an initiative uh, from our friend snooker back and from Sean and from Sean Murphy uh, but you, you've got to have venues that are willing to cooperate I, I'm sure that there are a few I mean I can think Northern Snooker Centre Leeds uh, Frames at Coolston uh, places like places like this, but you, but you, you, you simply need more snooker clubs, more places to play, mm. and also standard only rises the more people play. That's what pu pushes up uh, the, the participation standards. If a lot of people playing, and obviously numbers have, have dropped off. I mean, there still is a lot of interest in snooker. The viewing figures are great, but it just seems the the culture of going down the snooker club, particularly for young people, it has changed. The culture has changed since the eighties and nineties. I think one reason for this is that snooker is a very difficult game. <laughs> yes. You've got, to, you've got to have a lot of patience to, to master it to any, to any significant extent. Absolutely. Mark Alexander asks, if the misrule is called but balls have been scattered everywhere, will the opponent opt not to have them put back because of hassle? Well, I mean, basically no. Although, I mean, you sometimes do see... Them, it, I guess it depends on the position of the match. You sometimes see them 
very occasionally I would say, say, OK, I won't put the referee to it, but there's no reason why they shouldn't have them put back. No, there, there isn't. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 in a way, it, 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 does, it does slow up or, or even, some would say, d disfigure the game. But you've got to ask yourself, what is the alternative? Yeah. If, you, if you've got a misrule, then you've got to apply it in every circumstance. Mm. It is easier now on t in TV matches where they have the, the freeze frame and uh, the referees are uh, generally very good working together to, uh, to, to get them back. But, I mean, there was one in the World Ch couple of occasions in the World Championship where it was several minutes, you know, uh, putting them back. But, you know, everyone wants them to be, be put back right. Gary Thompson, who uh, is a player himself, he was played in the Q School, he said, why won't World Snooker give all professionals a wage? At this rate, Snooker will run out of players. So many are going into debt. I suppose there's, there's two sides to this, isn't there? You could argue that once you turn professional, you're effectively sort of an employee, as it were. You're on the payroll. So why shouldn't you get something? The other side of it is, if there are 18 ranking events and you don't win a match in any of them, people are entitled to say you're not good enough, so why should you get anything? So they're the two sides of it. It's a results business. Mm. Uh, it, it, may, it may be cruel, but it, it's, it's the way that the cream comes to the top. Mm. I looked into this because World Snooker published uh, the prize money for last season, and uh, the average wage in the UK is 27000 a year, just about. And of the 128 players on the tour last season, 62 of them earned that. So not even half earned the average wage. But of course at the top they were earning hundreds of thousands. At the bottom they're earning virtually nothing. But as you say, that's because at the top they've been winning tournaments. At the bottom they've not been winning hardly anything. Well, it's, it's the same in, in, in other... Um, in other activities, in books, for instance, the, the top authors, the, the J.K. Rowlings, mm. they earn fortunes, unimaginable fortunes. Uh, a lot of authors writing very worthy books. Uh, Black Farce and Cubal Wizards. Being well, yeah. the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, earn, uh, well, I won't say I won't say next to nothing, but <laughs> but, but but not very much. Mm. Indeed. Uh, Misha Watson asks, I'm going to slightly change this question. His question was, what would Clive's dream 16-man Masters field be? But I think we'll just cut it down to this. If you could choose, because you've seen anyone who's worth seeing play snooker, two players from any era, if they could play in a final, who would you want to watch? Or maybe commentate on. Two players in any era. Going head-to-head. -head. Going head-to-head. I did contemplate this a few years ago with with Joe Davis and Steve Davis, mm. um, because the of course the 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 longer we've gone on, the, the further the standard has improved since the days of Joe. But I, I wondered how how Steve would have reacted playing Joe. Um, what was the standard match in those days, which was a week's match of best. <laughs> Steve would love that, wouldn't he? <laughs> Weeks matter best of seventy-three frames. Well, not best of seventy-three frames. That they played out the frames even after a winning margin had been achieved. But they used to go to Leicester Square Hall. They used to play six frames in the afternoon, six frames in the evening for for a week, and and that was that was the way it was done. Mm. Of course, the trouble with that is that you you didn't get you didn't get much drama. People like to see the skill, but the drama, unless by some miracle it was close at the end. You know, it was, was almost non-existent. Mm. What do you think Joe Davis would have made of the shootout? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I think it was absolutely, it'd be absolutely unimaginable. But, but I can tell you this, he would have loved playing at the Crucible. Mm. Uh, I, I 
was, was with him actually the, the last year he went just before he died in 78 and he absolutely loved it, he thought it was marvellous mm, Absolutely Stephen Robertson asks do you still ever play snooker or billiards? No <laughs> no, I haven't played snooker since since 1991. I, I, unfortunately, with various injuries and changes of eyesight, I got to uh, a standard where it, it was no longer much pleasure to play. I, I held on to my billiards for a bit, but I haven't played uh, in a match for two years now, and I, I doubt that I doubt that I will. I, I miss it, but there's but there's no point in um, competing if you can't perform to sort of. An acceptable standard. Acceptable to me, that is. Mm. Colin McDowell asks, can Clive comment on how good Ray Reardon and Steve Davis were for younger listeners? Well, there again, it, it, it's how good they were in their, in their, in their era. Um, I think it's, it's almost irrelevant to say that, um, that they, they would lose... Put them, put them as they were then against the top players of today, and they would lose. But uh, the, the, they really, they really were excellent. We weren't, we weren't aware of the standard which which lay ahead when we when we were, we were watching them then. Uh, the game, the game was was different in many ways. Um, there was less emphasis on 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 potting. Uh, I mean, what I've noticed. As a commentator, what I used to regard as a good shot is now very much a standard shot. Mm. <laughs> uh, so you you have to sort of change change your 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 perspective there. But if you if you put those players, if you like, aged age twenty, and put them in the modern game, they would adapt to it because they had the the necessary uh, psychological qualities. Joe Davis, for instance, was a fearsome competitor. So so, so was Steve. Um, so so was Ray Reardon, and also no one no one in sport exists in isolation. You know, Ray Reardon inspired Steve Davis. Steve Davis inspired Stephen Hendry. Stephen Hendry inspired Ronnie O'Sullivan, and so on and so on. Uh, Nick Metcalf, who uh, is a writer for the Metro newspaper, he asks, uh, "What was your favourite ever match to commentate on?" There's a few to choose from. I never really, I never really think of it as a favourite match because I'm I'm absorbed in it and. He brought up the, uh, the, the the 99 semi-final between Hendry and O'Sullivan, where there are all those, particularly that session where there are all those centuries. Yes, well, of course, ironically, that requires very little commentary. Mm. You just, <laughs> they, they, they get in, and the, the, all you need really is is the shot and the referee, the referee's voice. Those, in many ways, those are the easiest matches to commentate on. But one that always sticks in my mind is the is the 2003 semi-final between. Um, the late Paul Hunter and 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 Ken Doherty, when uh, Hunter Hunter led um, uh, fourteen fifteen nine fifteen nine yeah. fifteen nine going in going into the final session uh, and lost seventeen sixteen, and I went into the commentary box. I remember thinking, well, I'll be out again in half an hour, <laughs> and of course <laughs> I was still there at half past six, uh, but but it, it was absorbing. Just, just to see the match turn round, and I also remember the the aftermath of it and how graceful uh, Hunter was in, in, in defeat in the face of what must have been a, a shattering disappointment. I mean, it, 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 he would have been inhuman leading fifteen nine if he hadn't thought, well, I'm as good as in the final. <laughs>
I think that's the, the thing about the World Championship, though. We've seen it. We had it with Martin Gould famously against Neil Robertson. Is there's so much time between the sessions? You know, you will have people coming up to you saying, "Oh, can you get me tickets for the final and all this sort of thing?" They're assuming you're already through, and that that must be sort of infectious. You know, you in your mind you're thinking, "You know, I can't lose this." But then when you get out there and you're back to the match, suddenly it's real again. You're playing snooker again, and, and anything can happen. Well, uh, that that's right. Ron Florax, who Mr. Q Tracker. Uh, which is an excellent website. Uh, he says, uh, "How does Clive think the quality of snooker coverage across all media has changed? Has it generally improved with greater volume?" Well, of course, I guess he's talking about the internet in particular. Uh, more greater volume doesn't necessarily mean higher quality. No, it doesn't. Uh, and and uh, as far as national newspapers are concerned, <coughs> we're, we're actually getting lower volume. <laughs> uh, uh, when um, in, in the eighties. Every newspaper was, was represented at, at the Crucible, for instance, um, and for a good part of the 90s. But uh, my, my own uh, newspaper that I worked for for the best part of 30 years, The, the Guardian, they abruptly decided uh, a few years ago that, that they weren't, they weren't going to do snooker anymore at all unless it was coming free from, from the Press Association, which is just the sort of standard nuts and bolts of, of scores and, and maybe breaks and maybe maybe the odd quotes. So I think one of the big problems actually facing the game is, is that uh, the, the amount of, of newspaper coverage is, is so small. You, you, you need it to, to, keep, to keep people not only informed but, but enthused. Um, so... Um, I, 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 I would say I would say that while certain things have improved, certainly the 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 amount of of television coverage because ten years ago was Eurosport still a twinkle in somebody's eye? Or, well, they were just sort of getting going. Just with just, yeah. just, just, just just starting, but but now just about every tournament that's that's, that's worth talking about is on television somehow or other. So. The actual television coverage uh, has, imp has improved, certainly in volume and in places, in quality. There are other places where it's actually gone down in quality. Mm. Yeah, I mean, talk talking about new media, I mean, there are some good snooker websites, but of course they're only going to be read by people who are already interested in snooker. This is why newspapers are important, because you're sat on the, on the train or whatever, flicking through it, and then you might stumble across it and get interested that way. And also, I think, in terms of new media, you know, Five or six years ago, there were a lot of blogs, and there's still quite a few. I mean, I, I wrote one myself, but they've actually become a little bit archaic. Now, Twitter is, it seems more significant. You can just go on and very quickly make your point rather than having to sort of ramble on it in great detail. So, new media will continue to change, and who knows, you know, in a few years' time, Twitter might, might be seen as old hat. Matt Selt might hope, might, might hope so. <laughs> uh, Phil asks, oh, this is an interesting one. He says, When did you come up with the expression, he's two up with three to play? <laughs> Which is kind of one of your catchphrases, I suppose. Yeah, well, well, uh, I guess it, I guess it's stolen from golf, um, right. uh, match, match play golf. It, it seems it seems just a good way to describe the state of a match. Yeah, yeah. John Michael White asks, "What change have you seen in the game that you would like to reverse, and what innovation would you like to see introduced?" I suppose the point is there haven't actually been certainly in terms of the rules there haven't actually been that many changes at all over the years. No, no, the, the misrule is the obvious I I example. I mean, there are, there are things about it which can 
set your teeth on edge a, a, a bit, but you've got to ask yourself the question, what, what is the alternative? Because um, if you look at something like the 1985 World Final, um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that, that, that um, Steve Davis and Dennis Taylor were playing deliberate misses, but they were certainly erring on the cautious side. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, and, and I think that, that um, elsewhere, um, there, there was quite a lot of deliberate deliberate misses for, uh, for, 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 for tactical reasons. I think the misrule, in, in a strange way, uh, speeded the game up. And as I say, it, 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 there's something about it that I, I, occasionally I, I don't like, but I can't think of a better alternative, and nobody else has. Mm. One sort of slight anomaly, though, is that sometimes, and usually you end up agreeing with the referee, but sometimes if it's a really, really difficult snooker, the miss doesn't get culled, which begs the question, what's the point in playing a really difficult snooker? That is, that is an anomaly. I mean, I think in, 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 those, in those cases, maybe the referee should say, well, what, what, is, what, is, what would be an appropriate number of attempts here? You mm. know, I mean, you, you can't have 20 attempts mm. if, it, if it's a very difficult snooker, but, but one seems, seems too few. I mean, maybe, maybe four or five attempts would give the... Um, will give the player laying the snooker an appropriate reward. Mm. Our final question comes from our good friends at snooker.org, which I believe is the longest-running snooker website. They were, they were there in the 90s before anyone knew what the internet was. He, he, and it's an appropriate one to finish on, actually. He says, how does Clive feel the game will evolve, both on and off the table? So are we going to see it carrying on, prize money going up and up and more tournaments, or, or will it sort of balance out, perhaps? I think total prize money will continue to rise. Um, I think the game will become less UK orientated. Uh, I think the, the 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 circuit will become more and more international because there's nothing like that time when uh, a nation gets on honeymoon with snooker. You know, they're, they're suddenly suddenly you know they think, oh, this is great. Let's have, let's have let's have more tournaments. So. I think I think that the outlook for snooker is very good, but I think it will be less UK centric. Will snooker get in the Olympics? Do you think? Well, they're they're doing all they can. Mm. Uh, Jason Ferguson, the WPBSA chairman, is also chairman of the World Confederation of Billiard Sports, which which embraces pool and uh, and and carom. Uh, and they were brought. This body was brought into being to try and get snooker in the Olympics. There's some interesting byproducts, though, of the attempt. There are certain there are certain grants available if you're part of the Olympic movement, um, and there's a certain there are certain advantages in actually having Olympic recognition. It it it, it, it establishes that you're. A proper credible sport, not some sort of um, some sort of folk sport, which uh, <laughs> mm. does not merit any serious status. Mm. So, whether it, uh, snooker actually gets into the Olympics, I certainly think that uh, its Olympic journey is worthwhile. One of the problems is, and you know, there's a lot of work being done, but you are rather at the mercy of where the Olympics are. If they're in a country, say America where snooker isn't big, it most likely will not be chosen for the Olympics. I mean, we've had Olympics in China, where snooker's massive, and the UK, 
and it didn't get in either of those times, although that was mainly down to the, the then uh, governing body and, and the way it was constituted. I do think Jason, no one's tried harder than Jason, have they, to get Sure, it? sure, sure. Okay, well, thank you for all your questions, and uh, just a couple of things before we finish. The first of them is you can subscribe to Snooker Scene, our July issue will be out, well, in July, <laughs> obviously, and uh, you can subscribe, go to the website snookerscene.co.uk, and I'm going to shamelessly plug my play in Edinburgh while I'm here, which is called The D-List, and it's on from the 3rd of August to the 29th of August, and if you go to edfringe.com, you can buy tickets, and if you do come, do come and say hello and say you've listen to the podcast. Um, the way I look at it is, I've suffered my, for my art, now it's your turn. Uh, the podcast will return at some point, I guess uh, later in the year, but uh, for now, Clive, thank you, and uh, thanks for listening. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.